Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning and Music at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and Theologian in Residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock, Arkansas. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we read 2 Kings chapter 22 and the first three verses of chapter 23. The story of King Josiah finding the scroll of the teaching that seems to have been lost for a good while now. After a string of really disastrous kingships, we finally get a good egg in Josiah, and he is heartbroken to see all the ways that even he has not been living up to this teaching that seems to have been buried in a temple storage room somewhere. Of course, he will change their ways now, But in a system where punishment can come generations after the offending sin, is it too late? What does it mean for Josiah to choose to recommit himself and his kingdom to God's teachings, regardless of whether it can impact the fate of his generation? Thanks for listening. Hello, Bobby. Hey, Amy. Okay, I, I know we've got we've decided we shouldn't just say how are you because that's too like <laughs> but now broad don't and open a question. Yeah. So here's here's your question. Uh-huh. We're gonna play Rose and Thorn. Well, you're gonna play it. Uh oh. I don't know how that goes. Oh come on, Bobby. Rose like I can imagine Rose and Thorn. You have to but... tell me like a good thing and a bad thing from oh. the last time I've seen you. So I so Rose and Thorn is such a beautiful way of describing that. In the youth ministry world from which I come, they're called pals and wows. Oh. Pals, like something I guess. That's like comic, that's like the comic book version. Yeah, Yeah, got it. Roses and thorns. That's so hard, Amy. How are you? It's just like, I'm fine. (laughs) (laughs) What's something, (laughs) what is the rose in your life this week? That's more, that's more complicated. I will say that when I was leaving my house today, uh, I hugged my kids and I said, okay, I'm leaving. And then everybody went away. And then I got gathered my stuff. And they were like hanging out in my kids' room. And then I, I opened the door. And my my son is like, daddy, daddy. <laughs> he came running and he hugged me around my little knees. And he said, I love you, daddy. And it was the, it was the sweetest thing. And it made my little heart, it made my little heart all a flutter. And so I went out the door. It's and like then the I, Grinch, like in the episode, like <laughs> the Grinch is still Christmas and his tiny heart. Yeah, grew, my little yeah. tiny Bible worm heart that is so curmudgeonly. You're not um, really Grinch. Suddenly it was full of love and joy. Mm-hmm. My thorn, I don't know. There's so many, there's so many thorns. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, the Grinch dumb. Also, that my other, I've got two roses. My other rose is that yesterday I led worship music at my wife's church. They have a little garden service and sometimes I lead the music for it. And I don't get to do that. Like that's a part of myself that's not very, you know. Actualized. Actualized. It's also not like part of my style. It's like, I'm not very good at this. <laughs> so y'all need to sing real loud. Uh, so you don't have to listen to me, but it, but it totally invitation. works. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like a, it's a good, uh, it's a good thing. And so it was very, uh, it was very joyful. For me, I love that. 
Yeah. Do I get to ask you your rose and thorns or is this just we're like... At a, we're out of time now. We just do it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my question to you last week was something like, uh, if you could be any animal dressed in fall apparel, what would you be? So, Oh, that's right. That was a very creative question. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Anyway, <laughs> thorns and roses. I didn't never. I never came up with a thorn, but I feel like it might get a little prickly if I start. A little prickly. Well, you gave us two roses. Two roses. Which maybe it was better for your spirit. Anyway. Yeah. Now I'm in. The, I'm in a good mood to read this text about the inevitable destruction of Jerusalem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, y'all. There's nothing you can do. Things are in motion, people. Yeah. Yeah. So we are today, we're back to narrative text. We were in poetry, we were in, you know, poetic, prophetic books. And now we are in 2 Kings, chapter 22, and a little bit of chapter 23. The narrative lectionary, the like official reading is just the first 10 verses of chapter 22, but then they have the option of just finishing the chapter, which you and I both feel is really important to this story. Yeah, so, I think so we're just mm-hmm. going to read all of chapter 22 and the first three verses of chapter 23. We were just in Isaiah. So what would you say to help us bridge from Isaiah to where we are here in second Kings? When we finished up last time in Isaiah 11, we were talking about the ideal king who we had suggested in its historical context, maybe had in mind Hezekiah. Mm -hmm. Hezekiah was king and Isaiah was writing at the very end of the eighth century. So right around the, you know, like the year 720 to 695, somewhere in there, I don't have the exact dates, but as the eighth century is turning into the seventh century, that's where we were last week. So we've moved about a hundred years now. We're down in the, at the end of the seventh century in the time of Josiah who was king from about 640 to 609 are the dates that are usually given for him. Mm-hmm. He is actually Hezekiah's great-grandson. So he's in this line of kings that extends from that ideal sort of king that we were anticipating last time. The situation is actually remarkably similar 100 years later. The Assyrians mm-hmm. are still uh, powerful. Uh, they are threatening the kingdom of Judah The Babylonians are also arising on the scene and they're going to become really powerful. As you know, in the, in the, just right after the time of Josiah, at the very beginning of the sixth century, they're going to become the king on the block. And so the whole world is sort of responding to that right now. There's Egypt and Assyria are feeling threatened by Babylon. So we've got this period of political turmoil. And in that context, Uh, Josiah comes to be the king, and he seems to be the king at a time in which his grandfather Manasseh and his father Ammon have not been following in the ways of his great-grandfather Hezekiah. Hezekiah has reformed everything, and then we seem to have slipped back again into this kind of I don't know exactly the, what the idolatry hot and mess. syncretism yeah. and hot, me- hot messness yeah. that often <laughs> seems to characterize the kingdom of Judah uh, in the reign of the kings. What else would you say about that to get us ready for this text? I think that's a great summary, really helpful, gets us there historically. The only other thing that really stands out to me is just will become obvious as we start reading. We've moved back into prose yes. from poetry, which always just feels like such a shift for my tiny little brain. (laughs) 
but maybe an easier shift, maybe an easier shift than uh, moving from from uh, the other way. Yeah, we spent two weeks in poetry and we're going to head back to poetry next week. But for just we got one little sort of narrative. Yeah, one little narrative reprieve. So we ready to get started? I think so. Okay, let's do. I almost said the book of Josiah. This is not the book of Josiah. <laughs> this is the book this of Second Kings. If you ever want to trick people, do you ever do this? Like try to trick people into thinking there's a book in the Bible. Like <laughs> this is kind of a jerk move, but like you're testing their Bible knowledge. Remember when I taught, I taught some class at the Jewish community center many years ago. <laughs> yeah. And there was a person in my class who was very insistent, a Jewish person, very insistent that there was a gospel of Mike. <laughs> I remember. It's totally plausible, right? Michael, I was like, there's really good. not. Like, I promise you there's not. Like, no, it's I've funny read. to me. That, that one's funny to me because like the book of Michael sounds kind of it Sounds like it could be. I know. Mike sounds Mike like. Makes me laugh. Right. Like some Italian from New York. Yeah, right. Yeah. So if you ever, you want to test somebody and you're like, hey, my favorite book of the Bible is the book of Josiah. And just see if they're like, oh yeah, mine too. And you're yeah. like, ha you don't know what you're talking about. That was just mean. I just feel that was my thorn. I am the thorn. <laughs> you are the thorn. You are the you know, thorn. Every rose has its thorn. It's Bobby. Just okay. like every night has its dawn. All right. I am just picking like every up. cowboy sings a sad, sad song. We're just going to talk over him, folks. Every Maybe rose he'll stop. has its thorn. <laughs> By the way, uh, this text starts out, Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And I just want to point out that a couple of weeks ago, when David became king at 30, you asked me what I had done by the age of 30. And so I want to know, what had you done by the age of eight <laughs> that compares to becoming king? Um, I definitely tried to hold down a benevolent dictatorship over my <laughs> sisters. Yeah. A little fiefdom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if it was totally benevolent. <laughs> I thought yeah. it was fair yeah. in my own mind. I know. His kingship was done. Bef- like, we're older than he was before. Oh, okay. Yeah. We'll just, we'll, yes. Yes, indeed. Okay. Chapter 22, verse 1, NJPS translation. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedida, daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. He did what was pleasing to the Lord, and he followed all the ways of his ancestor David. He did not deviate to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent the scribe Shaphan, son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go to the high priest Hilkiah and let him weigh the silver that has been deposited in the house of the Lord, which the guards of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be delivered to the overseers of the work who are in charge at the house of the Lord, that they in turn may pay it out to the workmen that are in the house of the Lord for the repair of the house. To the carpenters, the laborers, and the masons, and for the purchase of wood and quarried stones for repairing the house. However, no check is to be kept on them for the silver that is delivered to them, for they deal honestly. Then the high priest Hilkiah said to the scribe Shaphan, I have found a scroll of the teaching in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the scroll to Shaphan who read it. The scribe Shaphan then went to the king and reported to the king, 
Your servants have melted down the silver that was deposited in the house, and they have delivered it to the overseers of the work who are in charge at the house of the Lord. The scribe Shaphan also told the king, The high priest Hilkiah has given me a scroll. And Shaphan read it to the king. Okay, before I get into the details of this, overall, like what what is the like picture that is painted here for you? Like, what is your impression of how this came, how things are going? Yeah. What can you tell just from these 10 verses? I mean, I think what I would, the first thing that stands out to me is just that Josiah here is already repairing the temple, mm-hmm. which I mean, suggests a couple things. One is that the temple is in disrepair, which mm-hmm. is, I think points to, the lack of attention or at least the lack of resources that's been given to the temple in the reigns of the two Kings that have preceded him, his Mm -hmm. father and his grandfather since the reign of Hezekiah. And so attention has not been paid. Resources have not been given. And so the temple is in disrepair. So Mm -hmm. Josiah has this kind of natural desire to keep the temple. Like the temple is important to him and he wants to, make sure that it is taken care of appropriately. Mm -hmm. The second thing is that they discover a book of Torah in this text and they are super casual about it. Like you could almost miss it if you weren't really paying attention. You, I think you, if you stopped reading here and this is where the narrative lectionary has you stop reading uh, in their like shorter, shorter version of it. Yeah. Yeah, it, It is not clear that this is a particularly important yeah, scroll. which I think is, I mean, it's a quirk of the narrative lectionary to me, but I think it's also an interesting way that this is written, that it's like, oh yeah, we're repairing the temple and here's this little book. Like, I don't know if it's important or not. Yeah. And so that like in the story itself too, it's getting sort of passed over, at least at this moment. Yeah. The reason it's getting passed over though is so interesting because it's all about how you're going to pay the workers who are working in the temple. It spends a lot of time thinking about how you're going to pay the workers who are in the temple, making sure they're paid fairly, making sure it follows the proper channels. You don't have to keep a record of what you give them or what they do with what you give them because they're honest. Mm-hmm. So it, the text kind of, I mean, it's just, it's, it's overemphasizing the, I don't know if it's overemphasizing, but it is placing a great deal of emphasis on the way that people are being compensated for their labor Mm-hmm. And soft peddling the discovery of a book of Torah in the closet. Yeah, that was those were my that was a lot of thoughts, but that's what I was. No, thinking. I think those were really great thoughts and really helpful ones. I mean, I think this yeah the the emphasis on just like the I feel like everything is okay, you know, like the temple is being attended to and repaired. Yes. There is money to pay the workers. Yes. The administration intends to pay them fairly and trusts them and reports that they're honest. Yes. There's no apparent tension between the priest and the king. Mm. Like everyone is just, you know, the priest found this scroll and said, oh, this is interesting and gave it to the, like, there's no, there are no power struggles. There's no people undercutting each other. Like, if we're in like Pleasantville, everything is, <laughs> yeah. you know, everything is, is good. Everything is good. I love that. Especially, you know, thinking back to last week when we were talking about yeah. the Isaiah five text and it was, I expected grapes, but you got, but I got sour grapes and mm-hmm. all of that sort of that, 
you know, I wanted justice, but I got violence. Here, you're exactly right. It's justice. I expected justice and I got justice. Things are, things are being done Everything's right. Fine. Yeah, right. It's important. Sometimes I think like, oh, Josiah is starting a reform at, at the beginning of his rule. But notice, like just remembering that it's in the 18th year of his rule. Mm-hmm. So the reason I think, I guess, that everything seems to be going well is because Josiah has been a good king. Yeah. So he has established this sort of trust and working together and all of these kinds of things that, that we might hope for. Yeah, being a king, but without any specific knowledge of what of how that is described in this scroll that he right. finds. Do you want to talk about the scroll now? We'll talk about the scroll later. Do you want to talk about it now or later? The text hasn't told us anything about it yet. When Josiah reads the scroll, as we'll see, he starts to undertake an even more stringent reform. And many mm-hmm. scholars have noticed that the things that he does in 2 Kings 23, which we're not going to read much off today, are very much in line with the kinds of things that are instructed in the book of Deuteronomy. He's going to clear out all the implements of Baal and Asherah. He's going to tear down high places. He's going to do all of these things that Deuteronomy instructs. And so scholars have for a long time argued that what Josiah finds in this moment is the book of Deuteronomy, which has been, or some form of the book of Deuteronomy. A lot, a lot of scholars think it's probably Deuteronomy 12 to 26, mm-hmm. which are the core legal instructions, ethical instructions in Deuteronomy. And so like, this is a book of Torah, you know, this is the law handed down to Moses uh, on Sinai that has been misplaced and then discovered. But you're exactly right that Josiah seems to be doing a lot of the right things, even though it appears narratively that the book of Deuteronomy itself has gotten stuck in the storage shed mm-hmm. and people forgot it was there. Yeah. And the, I mean, in the Hebrew, the text, it, in the translation here, it says a scroll of the teaching. Mm-hmm. And the Hebrew is actually Sefer HaTorah, yeah. which just means scroll of the teaching. Right. But like the, the that word comes over time to mean like the Torah, you know, a a book of the Torah. Yes, they come to be very closely associated. If you think about that, like Deuteronomy is like in the closet and no one Mm. knows it's there. And when they discover it, they don't realize what they've discovered. Yeah. How does that happen? You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, how does that happen? You know, it's... it is, it's a really interesting question. And I, in some ways, I feel like it's like the other side of the coin of the question, like Josiah became king when he was eight. Like yeah. <laughs> he's 26 when he finds the scroll. He is still, you know, for all my joking about like, you know, in other texts, what, you know, young men in the kingship being all like crazy and violent yeah. and aggressive. Josiah is, is just not like, he's just not, built that way that is yeah. not this that is not his spirit and so even without the teaching of the torah per se he gets a lot of things right yeah and it seems like the the king is before him who maybe maybe did have this even with the teaching of the scroll did not have that spirit and so you know i don't know what to say maybe does that make me sound presbyterian like you have <laughs> Like there's some kind of predestination. I, I don't know. And yeah. I don't necessarily mean to make that 
I mean, that's not a well thought out point, but. I like it. Come on over to the Calvinist side. (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I I mean, yeah, there were somewhere along the line, it seemed to the people in leadership, like this was not important unless they were just doing a renovation and legitimately thought they were putting it somewhere, you know, like you put something safe. So you in a safe place, so you won't lose it, but it's so safe that then you can't find it again. <laughs> that happens to me all the time. Yeah. That's, uh, there's a couple important points in there, Amy. One of them is this line in verse two that just says, Josiah did what was right in the Lord's eyes, yeah. walked in the ways of his ancestor David, not deviating from it even a bit to the right or to the left. Yeah. That really is the highest praise that any king in the whole of the biblical canon gets. He yeah. is the ideal king in that sense. It compares him to David who was, ah, I mean, <laughs> he deviated he, a little. Did some but... <laughs> stuff too. Yeah. And that yeah. language there about not deviating to the right or the left, that is Deuteronomic language. And so yeah. the, the text is evaluating him as an ideal king in light of this book of Deuteronomy. But part of it, you're exactly right, is that he's just naturally inclined that way, or he has a spirit that is in tuned with God's desires, even though he doesn't have the instruction. I also raised that question of like, how do, you, how do you lose a book of the Bible? And I think historically speaking, if we're reading this historically, probably it's that his grandfather Manasseh or one of these kings mm-hmm. who was ignoring God's rule probably tucked it away and forgot about it. But I will tell you, when I go into churches and I teach Deuteronomy, it is very much like this. <laughs> they say, mm. that's in the Bible? Like, I will read, you know, one of my favorite passages in Deuteronomy 15, where it's forgive everybody's debts every seven years. Mm-hmm. And people will say, I never noticed that in the Bible before. Mm. I just say that to say that the, like, it's hard to lose a book of the Bible these days because it's like right there, you know, between the covers. Yeah. But it's not that hard to lose a book of the Bible yeah. in the sense that, you for, you just it's tucked away in there and you forget that it has any bearing on you and you live your life as though it doesn't exist and then you suddenly that's, rediscover it that's such a good point bobby and especially deuteronomy that has so much like case law basically yeah. that's like really all up in your business it, these are not <laughs> abstract ideas no. in here yeah. and they're going to talk about what you should do with your money and they're going to talk about what you should do in your private life and yeah. how you should what you need to do for the neighbors you don't like so much and what you, you know, like it really asks you to do hard stuff in a very concrete way. Yeah. And a lot of us, yeah, we don't, we don't talk about that part because we don't yeah. want to do it. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> okay. Is there anything else you want to draw out of these introductory verses before we find out some more about what was in this scroll? The only other thing we talked about, you talked about how, the picture in this passage is of justice and everybody's doing the right thing. I just want to come back to that verses four, like the first thing that Josiah commands them in verses four to seven and how much that is about trusting people to do mm-hmm. their jobs and to give them the resources they need to do their jobs and not to be expecting people to do the wrong thing. It's a risky way of ruling the nation, I assume. But Josiah has this sort of innate trust in the people and they seem to live up to it. Yeah. Just the fact that he is described as an ideal king 
And this is the way he conducts finances. Like people are paid what they deserve and he does not expect that people are going to steal from each other or steal skim off the top. Mm-hmm. I don't, it just seems important. I don't no, quite know where I to go with that. it, but it seems important. I think that's really important. And, you know, I was, I was noticing before when you were pointing out that, that it, that it has this high, very high praise for Josiah right up front in verse two, right after we meet him. It's so interesting to me, or I don't know if interesting is the right word, but that that comes before his story. Like it's yes. going to tell us out of the gate. Yes. He gets it right. Yeah. And this is not unusual. Like the other kings who get it wrong before him, it tells <laughs> yeah. us out of the gate, they got it wrong. Yeah. But, but to have that description, like if we didn't know already yeah. that Josiah did a good job and then we read that he, you know, handled the finances of the palace that way, you might say, that's so naive. That's irresponsible. Yeah. You have abdicated your responsibility. You have, you know, like sort of get into that, I don't know, kind of hunkered down, protect, right. uh, protective scarcity place. But this is saying, no, he, he did what was right. And this is what that looked like. I love that. Yeah. He did not deviate to the right or the left. He was the ideal king. And then the first thing it describes is his handling of the pay of workers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hi everyone, it's Bobby here from Bible Worm. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. Amy and I started Bible Worm a couple of years ago because we wanted to create a space where we could talk deeply about the Bible in ways that bring together our academic backgrounds in biblical studies and our deep engagement with communities and people of faith. We decided to make this resource free because we want everyone to have access to sound biblical scholarship that connects biblical faith to everyday life. We hope you're finding the podcast fits that need. That said, while the podcast is free, making it is not. Amy and I and the rest of Team Bible Worms spend a lot of time and energy studying, recording, and editing the podcast to make it freely available to the public. If you enjoy the podcast, and if you find yourself in a position to support our work, we hope that you will consider becoming a Bible Worm supporter for as little as $4 per month. For a bit more, you can also get early access to episodes, weekly liturgies, video Bible studies, join a monthly discussion group, and more. We realize not everyone is in a position to support the podcast, but if you appreciate our work and want to support us, we hope you'll check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast for more details. Thanks so much for listening, and now back to this week's podcast. Okay, so we've just had this very sort of -of matter-of-fact exchange between the priest Hilkiah and Shafan the scribe where Hilkiah was like, huh, found this scroll, gave it to Siobhan, Siobhan read it, huh, okay. (laughs) But they don't really comment. And the scribe first reports back to the king about what he was sent to do, and then sort of adds in, oh, and also the priest gave me this scroll. It's also interesting that it comes, like the priest gives it to the secretary who gives it to the king. Like, I don't quite know what to do with that, but you would think maybe the the, the priest would want some responsibility. They don't seem to think it's that important. They don't. They really don't. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's no emergency from from their That's absolutely right. perspective. Okay, so I'm picking up in verse 11, and I'm just going to read all the way to the end of the chapter, and then we'll we'll go back and okay. and chat. When the king heard the words of the scroll of the teaching, he rent his clothes. 
And the king gave orders to the priest Hilkiah and to Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Achbor, son of Micaiah, the scribe Shaphan, and Isaiah, the king's minister. Go inquire of the Lord on my behalf and on behalf of the people and on behalf of all Judah concerning the words of this scroll that has been found. For great indeed must be the wrath of the Lord that has been kindled against us, because our fathers did not obey the words of this scroll to do all that has been prescribed for us. So the priest Hilkiah and Ahikam, Achbor, Shaphan, and Isaiah went to the prophetess Huldah, the wife of Shalom, son of Tikva, son of Harchas, the keeper of the wardrobe, who was living in Jerusalem in the Mishnah, and they spoke to her. She responded, Thus said the Lord, the God of Israel, Say to the man who sent you to me, Thus said the Lord, I am going to bring disaster upon this place and its inhabitants in accordance with all the words of the scroll which the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods and vexed me with all their deeds, my wrath is kindled against this place and it shall not be quenched. But say this to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, as for the words which you have heard, because your heart was softened and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I decreed against this place and its inhabitants, that it will become a desolation and a curse. And because you rent your clothes and wept before me, I for my part have listened, declares the Lord. Assuredly, I will gather you to your fathers and you will be laid in your tomb in peace. Your eyes shall not see the disaster which I will bring upon this place. So they brought back the reply to the king. I like that your translation says he rent his clothes, which I heard as he rented his clothes. Like he went to the mall and got a tux or whatever. Uh, yeah, rent, rent the runway. I know. And then it has, has the hold us in the lineage of people who were the keeper of the wardrobe. Yeah. You could have a whole like, yeah. Yeah. That's how, well, that's how they knew each other. Yeah. yeah. Her grandfather ran. <laughs> that's how they knew each other. <laughs> the tux he went there the to place. rent his new outfit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, right. So, so rent is is tore. <laughs> he tore his clothing, which is a sign of like great grief. You know, people tear their clothing when they're in mourning. A very different response than we saw from Hilkiah yes. and Shaphan. Yes. Yeah, it's just it's it's so categorically different. And I'm so interested by that. Maybe the nature of the question that he then poses. So, like he he recognizes this is. This is important or potentially really important. And he responds by sending a group of people to inquire of the Lord mm-hmm. on our behalf regarding the scroll. So there's a lot of different things I think is interesting about that. But the first one is that's a really vague question. Inquire regarding the scroll. Mm-hmm. What do you like? What do you think? What does that mean? I mean, so then the next line is the Lord must be furious with us. Mm-hmm. So the way that I have read this is, y'all, we messed this thing up so bad, and I don't, I don't know what to do now. And so go ask the Lord. Like, mm. I found this book. Clearly, we have not been doing these things, at least in the previous generations. What do we do now? 
I think maybe it's an intentionally open-ended question because he's hoping that, you know, the inquiry might be that God says, you know what? The scroll was lost for a while and you've been doing a pretty good job without it. So it's, it's fine. No harm, no foul. Or, you know, I think he's anticipating when he says the Lord must be furious, that God is actually going to be furious, which is how it turns out. So I think he's, he doesn't know how, he knows that this is important and that they have not been doing what they're supposed to do, but he doesn't know what to do next. And so I think that's the inquiry. Yeah. What what are you thinking about it? I think that's right. And I mean, I wonder, maybe not. I wonder if part of it is also like, did you write this scroll? Like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, you know, is it a genuine scroll? Yeah. Is this, is this true? And if so, Mm. (laughs) we have a really big problem here. I don't know. I think I found it at first a little confusing, but then the more I think about, I don't know, when you're, when you're faced in life with like really big, messy, complicated situations, I don't know. I often find that I, I don't even know what the question is. Like it is just sort of like you present this big, seemingly unfixable, you know, knot of problems and you yeah. just sort of present it like, okay, <laughs> I found, yeah. I found this. Yeah. But maybe you don't even know what to, what to yeah. do about it. But I think it's interesting that the question is not, what do we do? What would you like us to do now? It's just like, almost like starting a conversation about the scroll. Like, okay, so we found this scroll. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What do we do? So interesting to me. Like you have described tearing of one's clothes to me sometime I'm, I'm sure on the podcast as you can't, it's almost like you can't stand to be in your skin anymore. Yeah. And so the tearing of clothes is sort of like the rending of your self in that sense. Yeah. And so he is having a very dramatic reaction that then turns into this inquiry. So he's, Clearly he's curious about it and he doesn't know what should happen next. But the way that I read it is it's not just sort of a wonderment. It is a, he feels the crisis. Yeah. He does not know how to deal with the crisis. The crisis is whether God is angry or not. And so what is there to do really, but go and inquire of the Lord. And in some ways, I guess if if you take the scroll seriously, like it already, it tells you what's going to happen. Like he doesn't actually have a question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The other thing that I notice about that instruction when he says "go and ask," he's in verse thirteen. He says, "Go and ask the Lord on my behalf." Yeah. And on behalf of the people, and on behalf of all of Judah. Yeah. His thoughts immediately go not to what does this mean for me as the king. I mean, he does think that, but. It's what does it mean to me and this people for whom I am responsible, Mm -hmm. which is not always how that plays out. Yeah, for sure. In fact, there's a story of his great-grandfather Hezekiah when Isaiah comes and says, there's going to be this disaster, but it's not going to happen in your lifetime. Hezekiah is like, oh, phew. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Yes. I I remember that and being like, Hezekiah. (laughs) Come on, man. Josiah has the different reaction, which is, <laughs> oh no, like it's not just me, but it's all of these other people too. Yeah. Which, I mean, I'm still toy like playing with this. Why does Josiah, why does Josiah react this way to the scroll when everyone else so far 
Hilkiah and Shaphan and others have been so have underplayed it so much. Yeah. And I guess they don't understand that it's significant or they're they're only thinking about I don't know, their own like immediate interests. But Josiah has this reaction. He realizes how serious it is. He realizes it has repercussions for the whole of Judah, not just him. And he doesn't know what to do. Okay, so so that prompts a question that I was going to ask you a little bit later in this conversation, but you put it in my head now. So here it goes. And I, I can already imagine what you're going to say to deflect the question, but I'm going to ask it anyway because it's <laughs> bothering me. One reason that people who found the scroll might not have taken it too seriously is because that those punishments haven't happened so far. Yeah. So it seems to sort of undercut the message of the text. Mm. Like these behaviors have been going on for generations and have gotten, it seems like, better in this last yeah. generation. So why would they think that punishment was still looming yeah you know rather than say like oh this scroll must not be true yeah and so here's my question which is like it's it's as basic like child rearing or dog training (laughs) theory that if you separate the punishment from the bad behavior Uh, by a whole lot of time yeah it's ineffective yeah And if like Josiah hadn't found this scroll and he hadn't known to ask about it, there could have been a punishment and no one ever would have known what the punishment was for. Uh, So the question that you're going to deflect is why, (laughs) (laughs) you rightfully deflect in a lot of ways, but this not a good system. (laughs) Why is the punishment so far separated from the bad behavior. How do you think I'm going to deflect that? You're going to say, why would someone tell a story about a system in which the punishment was so far deflected from the bad behavior? Why would they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which, is, I mean, which is a great question, which is a, which is a great question. So, I mean, the sort of non-theological scholarly way of responding to this question, which you're pointing to, is the argument that this part of this story may well have been written after the lifetime of Josiah, when Josiah was this ideal king. And spoiler alert, Judah's going to go into exile anyway, about 30 years mm-hmm. later. Mm-hmm. So how do you explain that? Well, you explain mm-hmm. that maybe by saying that, I mean, this is actually how the biblical text does it, is to say Manasseh, Josiah's grandfather's sins were so terrible that there was no coming back from that. Mm-hmm. And so if the question is, why did we get punished? The answer is because of Manasseh. And we write the text later that way. I think that's a fine historical explanation, but it does not get at the theological point, which I think is more urgent in our way of approaching the text. And, you know, when as you were asking that question, I was remembering our conversation about, I mean, we've had a conversation a lot this fall. The one I was thinking about was in the Ten Commandments where whether you love God or not has repercussions to the third and fourth generation Mm -hmm. or to the thousandth generation. And so here's another instance of that in which, I mean, and Josiah even asks the question that way. He says, the Lord must be furious because our ancestors failed to obey the words in verse 13. Mm -hmm. So he, he has already acknowledged that he 
has been kind of doing the thing as we just read about, mm-hmm. but God's still going to be angry about what happened before. And so this sense of generational responsibility, yeah. there were things that Manasseh did that are going to play out in the life of his grandson. And then in the couple of generations after that cannot be undone or will not be undone. I don't know that it's very effective pedagogy. I, I take your point, <laughs> but I'm yeah. not sure that the point here, that God's point is about pedagogy as much as we had a covenant y'all yeah. and you didn't keep it. And here's what happens when you don't keep the covenant. I don't know if, I don't know if I like that or not. Yeah. But that's how I make sense of it. Yeah. Was that a deflection or did that answer the question? No, it wasn't. It wasn't a deflection. I think I keep looking for like, where is this phenomenon mm-hmm. true in the world that I live in? Yeah. So that it doesn't seem so like arbitrary and like, it, it just seems so crazy to me. Like you, you know, like if you're trying to get people to obey certain rules and they don't obey them and then you put off the punishment by a couple generations, like that's, it's, I know we're not, whatever. It doesn't make sense on a human scale. But then I was thinking again, using like the human analogy about like the complications of mercy and love and discipline going together and, and how often I put off the discipline or hard conversations and just quietly get madder and madder, <laughs> hoping that things are going to get better until there's this sort of point of no return. I don't know. I wonder if there's, I'm trying to learn something from, I'm trying to relate to the character of God in this Mm -hmm. story in some way, because otherwise it just feels so, it feels so unfair. Yeah. I take, I take that point. That's, that's an important point. If you read back through first and second Kings, you know, it reads as though God has been trying, even back before that, all the way yeah. to, say, Joshua, all the way to, say, the Garden of Eden, <laughs> when we started this. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> you mean God has told us before to cut out this nonsense? I don't remember that part, Bobby. <laughs> so, yeah. So, like, yeah. but the question of, like, why does God get fed up now when God finally seems to have a king who, yeah. by his own nature— has been doing all of these things, even though he didn't have access to the scroll. Why does God now in this moment finally say, but you know what? It's too late. It's too late. The sum of all the bad things that came before you outweighs your not deviating to the right or to the left. That does not seem fair. But like one of the things that we do on the podcast, which I and we did, it, we did this in the Uza story, or at least you talked about it, that if you think of like the natural repercussions of the way that you have lived, rather than yes. thinking about it as God taking some sort yes. of direct smitey yes. punishment, yes, or the removing of the hedge, as we talked about yes. in Isaiah 5, if you think about it that way, and just to say Manasseh set things in motion by not keeping these commands and the repercussions of that are going to play out. Yes. And if you, if you take it one, which is not exactly what this text is doing, right? My anger burns right against this place. Like God is mad. But if you pull it back one step and say, 
there are things that have been done before us that are playing themselves out right now. Yes. There are things that we are doing right now, which are undoubtedly going to play themselves out in our grandchildren's generation. Yeah. It's true. That is, that is absolutely correct. There are, yes, we are still, and sometimes unknowingly, like obliviously living with, you know, the ramifications of say particular racist, you know, policies that were in place officially a couple of generations before us and how they play out now in, you know, the, the capacity of different populations to, uh, to lead a good, a good life economically, or, or of course, we could talk about climate change or we could, you know, there's a lot of things that. Yeah. That's what I was thinking about is if you imagine the generation that discovered the combustion engine, like, oh my goodness, that revolutionized human life in seemingly really positive ways. They had no way of understanding what, what that was going to look like a century down the road. And yet here we are. I'm I'm sad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you make of this? Like, God's like, I'm super mad at Manasseh, your grandfather, but you are a pretty good guy, Josiah. Yeah. So it's not gonna happen in your generation. It's or at least it's not gonna happen while you're still alive. It's gonna happen after you have died. Yeah. I think God intends that to be comforting. I know. And I have to admit, even though I, you know, I should know this text maybe better, but when I was reading it this morning, it said like, because you're doing such a great job, Josiah, I really, my head filled in the second half of the sentence <laughs> yeah. with like a second chance for the people. Yeah. Cause that's what Josiah really would want. One of the places where the narrative lectionary, you know, we're kind of jumping a little bit, but when you place this text right after the ideal King text, in Isaiah chapter 11 that we read last time, we sort of ended last time saying, if there were an ideal king, they could set everything right. Here we have an ideal king who cannot set everything right. The only thing he actually is going to end up setting right, I mean, in the long term, is that the punishment is not going to happen in his own lifetime. Yeah. That is so far from what... That is... We were hoping Isaiah 11 had said. And from what we can understand so far of Josiah's character, that's not really what he's going for. His own personal, yeah, you know, relative peace. Um, yeah. How fast his thoughts went in that one verse from like, what about me? What about the people? What about all of Judah? Like immediately he went out yeah. like, oh, I'm responsible for them. And so, yeah, I, I think you're right that the news that this is not going to affect him personally is not. Not as comforting as comforting. I think we would be remiss if we did not mention that in this section we have a prophetess. Yes. We don't have so many prophetesses. And the text doesn't tell us a whole lot about her. So I don't know that there's a whole heck of a lot to say. But her name is Holda. She is one of four prophetesses named in the Tanakh. And she's kind of named without ceremony. Like it it tells us they they say go inquire. They find a woman who's a prophetess. It, it identifies her in terms of the men around her, you know, her husband and her husband's lineage. 
So it's not like this has suddenly become like a super woman oriented text. Yeah. It's just it the text seems to find it unremarkable that the prophet they are going to see is a woman. I was trying to think I think we probably had this conversation the last time, but who the four are. I've got Miriam, I've got Deborah, mm-hmm. I've got Hulda. Is the fourth the, the fourth Isaiah one eight? is named Noadiah. And she's in the book of, I think, Zechariah. Oh. And it doesn't say anything good about it. She's not, they don't like her. Oh, no, sorry, not Zechariah. She's in Nehemiah. Oh, okay. Yeah, she's mentioned in one verse and, and she's not, they don't like her. Got but you. she's mentioned as a prophetess. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think anytime we have an opportunity to lift up women who are in positions of religious authority, which yeah. weirdly is controversial in our world today. I mean, in all and in our traditions, both of them for a long, long, yeah. long time, mm-hmm. it was so unremarkable in this moment that it didn't even right. draw a comment. That's right. Yep, that was just the local prophet, the local person to go to. All right, should we read the last little bit here? Yeah, let's go on. Okay, so we are now in chapter twenty-three, and we're just going to read the first three verses. At the king's summons, all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem assembled before him. The king went up to the house of the Lord, together with all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and prophets, all the people, young and old. And he read to them the entire text of the covenant scroll, which had been found in the house of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and solemnized the covenant before the Lord that they would follow the Lord and observe his commandments, his injunctions, and his laws with all their heart and soul, that they would fulfill all the terms of this covenant as inscribed upon the scroll, and all the people entered into the covenant. That is such a lovely ending to the story if you don't read the end of 2 Kings. You know what I mean? Like, if you don't know the exile is coming... That's really beautiful. Yeah. But we do know the exile is coming, which makes it less beautiful. (laughs) Anyway. I mean, I think it, for me, it makes it maybe less beautiful, but maybe just different, different beautiful. It makes it more complicated. Like God has not presented their fate as changeable. Mm -hmm. And yet the first thing Josiah does is to, Mm. sort of impress upon the people that this is the way, this is the way we should be living. This is the covenant. And I wonder like if he thinks, well, maybe it could be changeable, even though God said it wasn't like, you know, I rent my clothes and, and, you know, demonstrated my seriousness. And, and so maybe God's mind can be changed. But if he doesn't think that, why, why do you think he's doing this? Their fate is sealed. That's such a beautiful question, Amy. I, I really like that way of thinking about it. Because the, the only reason in the world that you would now follow the Torah when you have been told that following the Torah is not going to save you from the current punishment mm-hmm. is because you are devoted to God and you want to live God's way of life for its own sake and not because you're trying to accomplish some sort of better future for yourself. Yeah. 
like avert the punishment is what I mean. Right. I don't know, quite know how to read Josiah here, whether he's hoping that God will change God's mind or whether mm-hmm. he just thinks that we need to obey the commandments because this is what God, the way God has given us to live. Mm-hmm. And maybe he doesn't even know, but I think that sort of living the Torah that God has given because it is the Torah that God has given regardless of what that outcome might be there's there's a richness to that yeah Josiah was already devoted to living God's way of life before he had read Deuteronomy now that he's mm-hmm. read Deuteronomy he understands that God has different expectations and so he's recommitting to that and the people are recommitting to that because they're in covenant relationship with God and and even though they know that that maybe that that's the end of the story I like I like that would you take that or nuance that differently no you actually nuanced it a little bit even more for me the idea that to the extent that he could intuit things like this Josiah was already doing this without, as far as we know, any threat of punishment. Like, I feel like the Torah has in it these sort of two different, at least two different reasons that you should do this stuff. (laughs) One of them is because this is what's real. Like, this is God's, if you want to be in, you know, God's kingdom, you make it on earth and this is what it looks like. You, you create it every day and then you get to live in it. That's one reason. And (laughs) humans are a hot mess. And so sometimes they need a little bit of a like, you know, pointier reason. And so then you get all the punishments if you don't do it. And I often wish that we didn't, we didn't have those or didn't need those. Although I recognize that human nature sometimes requires that pointy stick. Yeah. So here if, yes, we can imagine that Josiah is, Josiah is trying to change God's mind, but we can also imagine that Josiah believes that this, that it is reward unto itself to live mm-hmm. all the days that you have in your body on the earth according to these ways, because this is, because this is the point of living. Like this right. is, this is what we're here to do and the outcome will be whatever it is. And I think that's really beautiful. So often, and you get a lot of this from the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, that, you know, the reason to follow the Torah is to win God's good graces. And so we need something else. This is sort of a counterpoint to that, to say, like, even when there is no possibility, apparently, of winning God's good graces, the Torah for its own sake and as a way of being in relationship with God is still the first thing that people think think to do it it matters for its own for its own sake and not for the outcomes it can bring yeah it feels a little i don't know if poignant is the right word but feels some kind of way that <laughs> that that Josiah is is a presumably reading them all of Deuteronomy so they're also hearing that there are yeah. punishments if they don't do this yeah. but they might as far as i know they don't know that because of previous generations, yeah. the punishment's already going to Oh, that's happen. interesting. So, it's so you don't not think like- Josiah stood up there and said, y'all, the, this game is already over. But let me tell <laughs> you what the rules were. <laughs> I know. Let me tell you what the rules were. We should try them anyway. 
Yeah. Uh, I, I hadn't thought about that. Like I kind of, I mean, I don't know. And so, totally and so sense. in a way that like, he is still using the pointy stick of Deuteronomy, but maybe towards his own sense that this is how, how the people of Judah ought to, ought to live their best life for their limited time. Mm-hmm. If you also read it like sort of that way, but if Josiah thinks, well, maybe. Yeah. There's also a lot of value in that too, because oftentimes it does seem like fate is set and there's no way out of this mess that we have created for ourselves. And yet to think, okay, but I'm still going to live the Torah. I'm going to do what the covenant said. And maybe we can figure out a way out of this thing. Maybe God will. And you know, in the biblical text, God relents from time to time. Yes as we have seen. And so maybe God will relent. We don't know. Yes. And so maybe there is still yet hope, even though it has been announced from on high that there Mm -hmm. is no hope. Yeah. There's no promise. There's no statement that this is what will happen, but, but this is sort of the best you can do. Yeah. To maintain some hope. And I mean, I don't know that they're thinking about this either, but just as previous generations, kind of created this problem for them, maybe there's something they can do to sweeten the pot for future generations. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we might as well do what is actually in our power to do. We can't undo something that has already happened. I love the way you said that. You could, they could have spent their time being angry at Manasseh. Yeah. But the way that the text tells it is they, they do the thing looking forward, thinking about, their children and their grandchildren what who need a future. And so we can make a change right now. Whatever has come before us, we can make a change right now in the hope that it will play out positively for them. Bobby, I've heard some comparisons of this, just sort of the scene that's being painted here of sort of like the, the king like went up to the house of the Lord and gathers all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all the authorities and like young and old, everybody, everybody mm-hmm. and reads this out to them and then has, you know, this language of entering into the covenant. Uh, I've heard comparisons to like, it's sort of like a Moses figure or, you know, maybe a Joshua figure who's it's also like sort Joshua of like a Moses thing. figure. Mm-hmm. What do you, what do you think of that? How does that, well, do you think, do you agree with that? And how does that, uh, I don't know, enrich or, or not your reading of this? Well, I, I really love that. You know, this text set of texts that stretches from Deuteronomy to second Kings, sometimes referred to as the Deuteronomistic history, likes these moments where important leaders, as you're mm-hmm. saying, have covenant recommitment ceremonies. Moses does it on Mount Nebo before they enter into the land. Joshua does it at Shechem uh, at the end of his life and so on. And so to put this text in that context, like, yeah, this is what, this is what people do from time to time Mm -hmm. is make a recommitment. What is particularly different about this recommitment as you're saying it is Moses's was, as we're about to embark on this new thing, Joshua's was here we are in the land that God has given us. And so let us go forth and live 
our life the way God has called us. Josiah's is, this thing has not gone well. (laughs) Historically speaking, they were 35 years before the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon. And yet the thing to do is still to recommit oneself to the covenant with God. It's such a different context for the, for the same recommitment. That's how it's striking me right now. What do you think about that? I think that's really beautiful. Yeah. And it just sort of ties into the last conversation that we were having too, is that you, you commit because you commit because you commit, like what else are, what else are you going to do? And sometimes, you know, we're at, this is probably moving us a little towards concluding comments, but we are a, we are a culture that likes new beginnings yeah. and youth and innovation and, you know, all that stuff. And to know reading this, that really they're towards the end of this period of time, this, you know, time in history for Judah, that the temple will be destroyed and they'll be exiled and you know, mm-hmm. not too, too long and have them commit anyway is um, really moving. Mm-hmm. As you say it that way too, the, you know, the, the exile of course is not the end of the story. No. It's the end of this story in second yes. Kings, but it's not the end of the story. Yes. And so even though this commitment is made in a time of impending disaster that will not be averted, it is going yes. to actually happen. The recommitment still plays out hundred years later in the reemergence of the people, which we'll see in the second part of Isaiah here in a few weeks. And so sometimes recommitment in the face of crisis does not look like the crisis suddenly goes away. Yes. It looks like the crisis comes anyway, but there is, there's hope on the other side of it. Whew. Is there anything else you would like to lift up about these couple of verses before we start moving into closing comments? No, we've talked about things I didn't even know I wanted to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Great, great, great. All right, friend, what would you want to leave our listeners with this week? I have been thinking about this from the perspective of the ideal king that we were talking about earlier, with the very way this text begins about Josiah did what was right in the Lord's eyes and walked in the ways of his ancestors, not deviating to the right or to the left. Josiah is exactly who we were looking for in last week's text in Isaiah chapter 11. We need an ideal king to turn this thing around. Now we get an ideal king who apparently cannot turn the thing around. That having an ideal king is not sufficient to the problems that were facing Judah at the time. One of the movements that's in this text that we have sort of talked about, but I've been paying more attention to is what that ideal king does as soon as he gets the report back from the Lord is he gathers the people and says, Mm -hmm. here's what it means, not just for the ideal king, but here's what it means to be the people of God. And so it's all of Judah, all of Israel, from the young to the old, all the generations, the most powerful, the least powerful, they're all gathered there and they all make a recommitment. 
And so I think, I mean, it's similar to where I ended last time, I think, but that ideal, putting all our hope in one ideal leader is not the solution. Mm. In order for a change to be made, it requires all of us to gather on that mountaintop or gather in front of the temple and to recommit ourselves. You know, what we want to think about that eschatologically, like the messianic age or the return of Jesus, like, I think that's a different conversation. But when we're thinking about what does this mean for us now, as we live in this time of apparent, uh, apparently irrevocable damage that has been done by previous generations and by we ourselves, like, what do we do? And here this text seems to be saying there is no body who's going to get us out of this thing. This is about recommitting ourselves to the way of life given to us in the Torah. It may well be that for us, like for Judah, what the next thing that's going to happen is a disaster. Mm-hmm. But the recommitment beyond this text plays out, as we were just saying, in a, in a new possible future. And maybe that's where we are too, recommitting ourselves regardless of what the next thing is, even though it seems like maybe there's no way out of where we have found ourselves, even though we can't find the ideal ruler who can solve all our problems, the sort of recommitment, that's where the, that's where the future lies, no matter how hard it may be to get to that future. Do you listen to uh, a podcast. Well, you probably don't have time for this. I don't do, you know who Kate, do you know who Kate Bowler is? <laughs> I do. Oh yeah. I love Kate Bowler. Yeah. Okay. So I listen to her podcast sometimes. It's called everything happens. Not everything happens for a reason. Everything just happens. And yeah. she is at, if y'all haven't listened to her podcast, you really should. She's a, a Christian theologian who got a, a cancer diagnosis when she was young and a young mother and, and lived many years thinking she was going to die and, and really and really wrestled. I was listening to one of her episodes yesterday and and what you were saying made me sort of think think of a lot of what she was saying is that there is a temptation sometimes to use words of scripture as though they can unlock a way for us to actually feel like we're controlling things mm. that like if I do this then this will happen and so actually I'm in control. <laughs> right. And many of our lives demonstrate that that's not actually true. And on the grand scale, you know, we can also say that that maybe there's not true. I I think what I find so kind of moving and hopeful about this text is that there's it, there's no strategy. There's no clear like mm. you can't mm-hmm. bend history to make it work in your favor. Mm-hmm. And that it, and it's and that is sad and tragic. Like it's not it's not. It's not going to be a good outcome in that way. And the easiest thing would be to just lose hope entirely or disconnect from God and scripture and community entirely and become this sort of like hedonistic, we might as well do whatever we want, you know, like we're all screwed anyway. And I find it incredibly profound and hopeful to choose instead that like, know that the teachings are good because they're good. They're not like a punishment. They're not a set of rules that are meant to make our lives hard, but are worth doing. They actually are meant to make our lives good. And even if our lives are 
you're not going to end the way we want them to. We should do them because because they're meaningful and rich and true. Mm-hmm. And and I guess that's what I see in in Josiah's imploring the people to. I mean, really, it's the same thing you said, Bobby. That imploring the people to live up to this. Mm-hmm. All of us should live up to this, mm-hmm. even if we don't know how that's going to play out in our lifetime. I love that, Amy. Well, next week we are back to the world of poetry in Jeremiah 33. And in the Christian tradition, it's the first week of Advent. That text is for the first week of Advent. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, I've been reading Jeremiah with my weekly study group at the synagogue. So it'll be fun to sort of go back and see how that uh, fits in here. Good, good. Thanks for a great conversation, my friend. Yeah, you too. I'll see you next time. I'll see you next time. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Bibleworm podcast for details. Bibleworm is produced and edited by Bobby Williamson. Our theme song is sung by Colin Backey, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many thanks to all of our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. Next week, we read Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 10 through 18. Until then, keep on digging.